And he asked the Lord for wisdom because he was getting ready to lead a people of great magnitude, of large numbers, and he knew that he couldn't do it on his own. And you find that story in 1 Kings 3, 5 through 10. Solomon was young and inexperienced, but was humble enough to admit it. This was wisdom in action. He knew his own personal limitations and asked God for help. He knew that the Lord was the only source of wisdom. His request pleased the Lord immeasurably because he didn't ask for wealth, he didn't ask for long life, nor did he even ask for the death of his enemies. In this, this passage that we have tonight, the Apostle Paul presents us with at least eight commands in these uh, seven verses pertaining to walking in wisdom. But I've reduced it down to uh, three commands, and this will be our outline for the night. The first is going to be walk cautiously and wisely. The second is walk soberly and spiritually. And then the third is walk submissively and fearfully. In this passage, the Apostle Paul contrasts the spiritually minded person, the spiritually wise person with the fool. In the context of the passage, Paul is referring to the supreme fool, which is the atheist. And there are two types of atheists. The theological atheist, one who denies God in his words, and then the practical atheist, who denies God in his actions. And I believe that sometimes we as believers act as practical atheists. When we as believers sin, we are tacitly saying to the Lord, or declaring to him that either we don't believe in what his word says, or we don't, we don't care. We totally ignore the ramifications that are part and parcel to sinning and disobeying God. In other words, we do not take God at his word. We show that we have no regard for his promises, nor do we take his threats seriously. And as we know, the supreme fool is the one who is anti-God in his thinking and in his living patterns. He is his own God. He denies the true God. He mocks at sin, and he possesses his own truth. He trusts exclusively in man's wisdom and man's knowledge. And he's totally devoid of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. He trusts in his own abilities, his own mental abilities, as though they were not affected by the fall. And of course they were. Ultimately, he totally divorces himself from the knowledge of God. And in Romans 1, 20, uh, 22 and, uh, 21 and 22, and you don't have to turn there, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fool. fools. Another illustration would be Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. He quoted the words from the poem Invictus prior to being uh, executed by lethal injection. He said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, I won't make fun of the fact that this man is probably an eternal torment even as we speak. But if I had an opportunity to talk to him right now, I would ask him, how is this philosophy of life working for you now? This is a very serious issue. We need only read the profile of the fool 
described in the book of Proverbs. Now, we're not going to do that. The fool is mentioned approximately 37 times in the book of, of uh, Proverbs alone. And there's only 31, book, uh, 31 chapters. So uh, I think that's an, an important issue to the Lord. The fool. The fool's ultimate destiny is inevitably sealed by his own sinful conduct. In Proverbs 14 and 12 it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 1, 29 and 32, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. This is reprobation. Paul uses negative truths pertaining to the fool to advance his argument that the spiritually wise person should avoid this type of conduct and this type of thinking at any cost. In Proverbs 12 and 15 it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Paul provides every believer with the best advice anyone could be given in verses 1 and 2 where he tells us to imitate the character of God and he tells us to imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our first point, Paul's first cautionary statement. Walk cautiously and wisely, and that's found in verses 15 through 17. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Do you have, you need to ask yourself the question, do I have a reverent awe and a holy dread for the living God? Am I wise in my own conceit or do I defer to God and rely upon His wisdom? Because His word is wisdom. And then we look in verse 15, the very first word, look. It's the Greek word, with us. Billy Graham used to say, you never see a U-Haul at trailer behind a hearse. And that's the truth. You're not going to take anything with you. The only thing that you're going to take with you is those things that you have done for Christ. And those are the only things that are going to matter. In other words, we are supposed to buy up and purchase the time because the days are evil. Meaning, time is, is, is winding up Time is, the days are evil. We see this on every hand. All you have to do is turn on TV. The most important thing is, is there is an expiration date on your life. In Hebrews 9 and 27, the Lord says uh, that <clears throat> it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We are going to die one day. That is one appointment that we will not be late for. And so as a result of that, we don't know when that time is. And because we don't know when that time is, we should be using all of our time. Now obviously there are times when we've got to work. There are times when we go to the doctor. There are all types of things that we must do throughout the course of the day. But the things of God should take up the lion's share of your life. Because again, all of these other trivial things Temporal things won't mean a hill of beans in 50 years if you live that long. More importantly, if you died within the next second, 
within that next millisecond, all that you did did in this life apart from Jesus Christ won't mean anything. Yet we work so feverishly and frenetically to have. We work so feverishly and frenetically to achieve. And there's nothing wrong with achievement. But the most important thing is that we achieve for Christ. Because that's the only thing that matters. Paul is trying to establish an eternal perspective here, which many Christians lack. In John 9 and 4, it says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, and the night is coming when no one can work. That night is death. Again, we're going to die, and we don't know when that is, or maybe the rapture will take place. What will you be leaving the world with? Works that are pleasing to the Lord, that you will be able to stand before the Bema of Christ and not bow your head in sorrow. Or will you be able to go to him and say, well, I ran a football for 100 yards. I sank a basket from one end of the court to the other. And what does it mean? Nothing. There is no such thing as a post-mortem second chance. Once you die, that is it. That is sobering to me. That when a person dies, that's it. There's no chances where the Lord's going to say, you have a do-over. There's no chance where God is going to say, well, I'll let you go back and, and, and do some works for me. Which brings us to number two, walk soberly and spiritually. In verse 18 it says, do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery. And again, some of your translations will say dissipation or excess. But be filled with the Spirit. Now I must admit, the first time I, I read this verse, I wrongfully assumed that the Apostle Paul was simply saying, in the same way that a person is controlled by intoxicants, you should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is not at all what he was saying. In other words, I thought Paul was simply uh, using this statement as an analogy. He wasn't. He was actually remedying a sin that had crept up in the Ephesian church. In my studies, I've come to understand this, that all of Paul's letters were written to either commend, condemn, correct, or correct sinful behavior and thinking in the Christian church. That's something that you need to take with you as you study uh, uh, the epistles of Paul. He's not writing in a vacuum. He's not writing simply saying, oh, I just had some time to write, so I'm going to say hello to the fellows in Rome. No, he had a specific, specific reason each time he wrote the Word of God to the church. So when I first read this, I broke the cardinal rule of interpretation. First of all, we never spiritualize, we never personalize, we never allegorize. We must literalize. What did Paul say? In other words, when the sense of the text makes common sense, we need to seek no other sense. I read my own meaning into the text as opposed to lifting the proper meaning out of the text. I failed to allow the text to speak and say exactly what the original writer intended to say. We have a lot of things to look at as we study God's words. We, we look at the time, in, in this particular place, the time that the letter was written, the geographical location where it was written, the cultural implications of the period, the theological and doctrinal implications, and to whom was Paul making this statement? 
And lastly, why did he feel the need to write this letter in the first place? This is how we approach Scripture as we study. And there's this warning. Please understand that our cultural mores have absolutely nothing, nothing to do with the Scriptures. We have to understand that the Scripture is a Hebrew document, first of all, from start to finish. And so we have to put on Hebrew goggles as we study his word. The culture should not come into play at all until we've gleaned all the truths that we can out of that passage and then apply it to our lives. But other than that, the culture should have nothing to do. And this is important. And the mistake that I made when I looked at that passage and just came up with an interpretation on my own. So in a nutshell, Paul was addressing a problem which became a clear and present danger in the church. Keep in mind that if Ephesus was a major religious center in the Greco-Roman world, its people were steeped in idolatry and gross immorality. And if you recall in verses 5 and 6, the influence of the city of Ephesus had seeped into the church. Drunkenness and sexual immorality were integral parts of the pagan worship system of Ephesus. These perverted practices were beginning to metastasize in the church as a cancer. These people of Ephesus worshipped Zeus, and the, who was the supreme deity of their Greek uh, pantheon of gods, and they believed that Zeus had a son named Dionysius. Greek mythology claims that Dionysius devised a religious system which involved wild music, frenzied dancing, sexual perversion, bodily mutilation, eating the raw flesh of sacrificial bulls, and drunkenness. For this reason, Dionysius was referred to as the god of wine. His Roman counterpart was Bacchus, from whose name we get the word Bacchanalia, the Roman festival of drunkenness and orgies. Now, having that information gives you some background or a backdrop to be able to interpret what Paul was saying here. This was not merely Paul giving a prohibition against getting drunk, even though that's true. It is true. We should not get drunk, and Scripture speaks loudly about it. But it had more to do with the orgiastic form of of worship practiced by the pagans. It was believed by these pagans that when they performed all of those things, those things that I just mentioned, that God actually entered their body for this sinfulness. And so guess what? Now, the saints at Ephesus were starting to import this stuff from Ephesus into the church. And this is what Paul was attacking. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And that could be a sermon within itself, and it could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the church is rife with false uh, interpretations of what it means or, or explanations or definitions of what being filled with the Spirit is. But Scripture is very clear as to what it is. Suffice it to say, to be filled with the Spirit of God means to be completely controlled by the Spirit of God, not in a mystical or ecstatic way, because God is not the author of confusion. Uh, Other synonyms would be walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit has absolutely nothing to do with ecstatic utterances or speaking in tongues. Paul is literally saying, be being filled. 
Keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event. All believers are permanently indwelt and sealed by the Spirit of God, but not all believers are filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled or controlled by the Spirit of God means that the individual Christian must yield himself to the authority and power and sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. There are many believers who are truly saved. They are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but they are not filled with the, uh, the Spirit because they are not walking in obedience to the Word of God. Understand that because the Holy Spirit is a divine person and He dwells within us, He can be grieved, He can be quenched because of our disobedience and our sin. And I'm almost done here. If a Christian is sinning, he or she is not being controlled by the Spirit at that time. They are fulfilling the lust of the flesh. In order to continue in a state of being filled by the Spirit, one must obey His commands, confess sins, and repent of them. And this will allow the Spirit of God to function rightly in their life. A Spirit-filled church, Paul says, will do this in verse 19. We will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with all, uh, with all your heart. If we are genuinely a church that is filled with the Spirit of God, we're going to do these things. And just a very brief definition of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms is music that focuses on God's glory his person, and his work. Hymns are songs of praise. They showcase the salvation and deliverance of the Lord. And then spiritual songs are personal testimonies. They are songs of devotion and dedication. Our last point. Walk submissively and fearfully. In verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spiritual submission means to put under or to subordinate oneself to someone else. To prefer others above ourselves, according to Philippians 2 and 3. Regardless of social rank of, of a Christian, uh, this should not have anything to do with whether that person, first of all, can be humble or be kind. But what Paul is really saying is that there is no big use in the church and little lies. There's no such thing. We're all on the same level. And we should all, as believers, if we're filled with the Spirit, be able to exercise or uh, display a, the character of kindness and humility because that is what Christ did. And this is the very essence of walking in wisdom. So I have three applications here very briefly and we'll be done. First of all, when we walk cautiously and wisely, we will avoid the temptations and obstacles that the enemy places in our path and strive to walk uprightly for the Lord. The second application, when we walk soberly and spiritually, we will avoid any practice that would cause us to deviate from serving God with sobriety and soundness of mind. And then the last thing for this evening, when we walk submissively and fearfully, we will consider others over ourselves in doing so, we will show reverence and respect for God. That's what Paul says. 
because we are supposed to be mirroring his character. So my admonition to you, or my exhortation to you tonight, is for you to seek the wisdom of God. The only way that you can find that wisdom is in his word. And then once you've read it, or once it's been preached to you and you understand it, then you need to live it. Let's pray.